Hello everyone, I'm Molly McManus, Client Solutions Director at Intuitech, and welcome to Wavelength, the IEVA podcast, a podcast where we break down the news, technological advances, and career opportunities uh, in the UV industry and water at large. And today I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Spicer. Hi, Molly. Dan is our is the Director of Sales and Marketing at Lysources Incorporated. And then more importantly, we have our fantastic guest, Dan. Go ahead and tell us who we have today. Awesome. Yeah. So today we've got um, the pleasure of speaking with one of the big shots in the industry, Mr. Gary Hunter. Gary's been with Black & Veatch for over 35 years. Um, he's focused primarily on the wastewater technology. And actually, I believe his title is the Wastewater Treatment Technology Practice Lead. Hang on. Uh, Gary is shaking his head. Why are you shaking your head? I just got promoted. Ooh. What's, oh. the, what's the new title? I am a global technology practice leader. Oh, man. That's even better. So that, and um, so you've got a, quite a background um, as it pertains to addressing issues such as the control of PFAS compounds at the municipal and industrial level. Um, you're currently assisting the Water Environment Federation in preparation of a definitive reference book detailing the current state of the science and treatment technologies to address the impacts of PFAS at wastewater plants. Um, what was printed and available at WEFTEC last week. Ooh, good plug. I like that. That's awesome. Um, and finally here, I've got to note that Gary's uh, recent PFAS-related projects include addressing PFAS-contaminated landfill leach from the cities of, is it Manistique? Manistique, Michigan. Ah, Manistique, of course, Michigan, and St. Joseph, uh, Missouri. Well, Gary, thank you very much for coming on the uh, Wibbling Podcast, and we're happy to have you. Thank you very much, Molly and Dan. If you don't mind, just give our listeners and, and quite frankly, Molly and myself, a quick um, quick and dirty explanation of how you got into this field in the first place. I actually started in college in 1976, so it goes back a long time ago. My first two years were uh, in uh, more general uh, engineering. I was on a track scholarship at Ricks College in Rexburg, Idaho. Uh, after graduating from Ricks, I left and served a LDS mission in New Zealand for two years. And then I came back and went to Brigham Young University from 1981 till 1985. And I got my bachelor's and master's. I graduated my master's in 1985 and then started at Black and Beach. And I'm still in the same department uh, working uh, uh, to this day. And so I've actually got 38 years and moving on 39. So at Black and Veatch, what what generally you do what the boss doesn't like to do. Words uh, of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, do the things that nobody else wants to do right. because then you the stay opportunities. Stay in business and you stay employed and you learn a lot a lot of things. But the individual about I don't know five to seven years in the the individual that was doing the wastewater disinfection work at Black and Veatch. Uh, retired. And so that gave me an opportunity because my boss didn't want to do that, to move into that. And so I've been uh, involved in that. Most all of my work is predominantly, I won't say all, but except maybe one project way back when, uh, on the wastewater disinfection side and looking at deployment of UV, a lot of UV, but other disinfection technologies at wastewater treatment plants. So I've got to do a lot of things, but in my role now, I, I'm essentially I see on the wastewater side every UV project on the wastewater side that Black and Veatch touches, from 
around the world. I guess I'll say it that way as well. So I, I see a lot of UV projects, uh, you know, in terms of things over the years, but all wastewater projects. Gotcha. Cool. I will say, so the most surprising thing of, of your background was the, the very beginning. You know, I've only ever known Gary Hunter as Gary Hunter, the expert. You know, the idea that Gary Hunter started out as a kid on a track scholarship is really cool. Well, that was a long time ago, and I'll say <laughs> galaxy far, far away. And I was going to say, I Gary, had, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was uh, cross country and track. I went to th three national meets and then set the school record in a 10,000 meter race that at the at the college I worked. I was oh. at. Like but that, like, that was also things. about 80 pounds lighter than what I am right <laughs> now. So, um, yeah. And I can always say if Oops. I ran that much, I would probably still weigh that much, but I <laughs> end up having to do engineering things. The other, so the, that, that caught Molly's ear. Um, what caught mine was um, you, you did two years of missionary work in, in New yep. Zealand. Yep. So, yep. so would you, that was before or after college? In the middle in the middle and you studied electrical engineering or what was your actual background? I, I missed that. No, most of my, well, <laughs> What's you your gotta degree? you've <laughs> got to remember something here. You ask a very interesting question, Dan, is number of degrees that we have today that we, people can go into, go to school yeah. on didn't even exist when I started in school in essentially in 1976, they, those didn't agree. I mean, there were essentially the four major, uh, Disciplines, you know, chemical, civil, electrical, and mechanical. Yep. I went to school in civil engineering, got both my bachelor's and master's in civil engineering. Gotcha. So you, you've got it. Dan, when I started in 1976, we were still using tubes in yeah, our electrical so, engineering study. So <laughs> I was going to say, so like you didn't minor in like um, exotic French uh, art and cuisines? <laughs> no, no, no. That wasn't an option. <laughs> No, that that those those degrees didn't exist. Didn't exist. Recreational was, studies. Yeah, so that's the 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 kind of more interesting. This when I was applying, I, I got admitted into when I was working at EPA. I got admitted into the doctoral program at Clemson. That's one of the reasons we moved to South Carolina. And so the professor was asking questions, interviewing similar to this, and he goes, "Well, why didn't you go into environmental engineering?" And the professor who was on the other side of the table said, because it didn't exist when he went to school. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the ability to get a more refined degrees exists today more so than it did back in those days. For Environmental engineering is still considered a really new degree for a lot of schools, too. Like, it wasn't an option mm -hmm. when I was in college a few years ago. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's wild. Well, cool. Very cool. It's interesting that you fell into wastewater because there was just a vacuum and you you just went for it. You know, it's it's always interesting to me to see how people's careers develop in water because very few people are like it really ended up where they fully intended to be. You know. Well, uh, 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 so you have to understand. So I'm working while I'm going to school to get my bachelor's degree, and all my bachelor's courses were actually in transportation engineering. And then when I got into my master's, then the professor allowed me to essentially move into the lab. And that's kind of where I kind of took off at that particular okay. point in time. And so I was the TA in the wastewater class and then running the lab. 
a long time ago. (laughs) In a galaxy far, far away. And I would say, Gary, the other thing that kind of, uh, it's not funny, but it's funny in in today's, I guess, day and age where you've been with B&V for what, 35 years? And 38. 38 years in Molly and I generation, typically we will last about 35 days, I think, between jobs, probably. In fact, 38, and I'm still in the same department the day I started. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, good for you. Great, great thing. Wow. Why do you stay? Uh, Well, I I can answer that question, actually. Yeah, why'd you stay? the, The people that I worked with were the best. I mean, so hardworking, you know, I'm Midwestern type of folks, uh, very enjoyable to work with. I mean, we had a lot of fun. We, you know, it was, it was tough. It could have been stressful, but we, you know, laughed about it. We cried about it. They were great people to work with. And the other, and so I can say that was really great. A lot of good people, a lot of good people that wanted me to succeed, worked very hard uh, in terms of providing opportunities for me to succeed. The, the Supervisors that I had were were tremendous people, and it was still are tremendous people. But they they I guess saw something in me that I didn't. And it's always nice to have people like that that allow you to do that sort of thing. So that's a really awesome background, and uh, yeah, we appreciate you laying that out for us. Um, so that's that's kind of the past. What got you here? What are you what are you looking at in the future? What trends in the technologies are you tracking? Are you most excited about? Would you say? Uh, so one of the big trends is this the deployment of the UVC LED and, and especially on the LA, uh, on the wastewater side. I'm just in, that was sort of the focus that I was going to try and go back and work on my PhD associated with that. Uh, I, you know doing things better, doing things faster, doing things and working things, you know to be able to ensure compliance, ensure public health. I was the chair of the WEF Disinfection and Public Health Committee for four years. So I have this kind of developed this passion for sort of the public health. And as, as COVID unfolded, then I got involved in a lot more of the public health associated side of it, just not just disinfection, which I think has been really helpful as well as for IUVA in terms of explain uh, deploying it to a lot of different uh, areas. That essentially, we can we can be able to essentially provide that public health situation that maybe other technologies can't, which is kind of nice uh, in terms of that. So in the surface, this was an outgrowth of, of COVID. It's, I think it's a marvelous thing. I'd like to see that sort of keep moving. I think there's a lot from, from a public health standpoint. The LED side of being able to deploy that technology to, I'll say, developing countries to essentially ensure public health Drinking water is just amazing. The technology that we can be able to do to be able to help people get just the the basics of, of you know sanitation, basics of drinking water, just phenomenal. So watching that type of technology, watching it get sort of unfold is is sort of real interesting. Uh, and the one that was last week that you know that we're sort of watching is how now uh, AI. And a lot of that will kind of roll into the control of uh, our disinfection systems as we move forward. Wow. I'm actually intrigued by that type of thing uh, yeah. in terms of analysis. That's really cool. So uh, applies to, well, I would say wastewater, but drinking water, but they're doing a sure. lot with machine language and 
interpreting data and being mm -hmm. able to do that online with sensor technology to be able to better tune, I'll say the especially UV systems to match the wastewater conditions coming in and, yeah. and essentially delivering a optimized uh, conditions for removal of the microorganisms. And, and that's that's really what we want to see. That's so that's a lot. There's a lot going on and a lot from our perspective, if you're on the wastewater side, I will say behind the scenes, but a lot of cool stuff going on right now. Very cool. And honestly, I think some people kind of view it as a sleepy backwater of the UV industry. Everyone's COVID, upper air disinfection, induct, you know, more of the air applications and oh, water's been figured out, water's kind of all done. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. And it, it most likely it never will be, quite frankly. I, I think even things less to do with wastewater, but AOP and drinking water is going to be a huge thing that will continue to evolve, I think, down the road here. Do, you don't really see much AOP in, in wastewater, do you, I, I would yeah. imagine? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes, oh, okay. yes. Especially as you... As you go to reclaimed water, California, uh, yes. meeting uh, 14D and NDMA, we have pockets in North Carolina that essentially are trying to essentially, they see 14D. And so we're having to address that uh, relative. And I think there's some pockets up in New York State that have similar issues. So we're seeing the outgrowth of these organic constituents, mm. emerging organic constituents within uh, discharge permits. We're seeing folks now having to manage that. Uh, we see the disinfection byproduct issues with chlorine emerging more and more. A number of the utilities here in the Greenville area moved from chlorine a number of years ago because of the disinfection byproduct issues that they had to meet relative to the mm -hmm. receiving streams. So it's, I'll, I'll, I'll say that's one of those growing areas. We're going to see a lot more uh, emphasis on that particular effort yep. as we move into the future. Feels kind of like the 1900s were sort of uh, let's handle pathogens and now the 2000s will be more about let's handle uh, contaminants of concern, right? Other non-pathogenic, non non-biologicals, right? And, and then it's how to manage that, how to control it, how to economically deploy it so that the people who need it can, can economically afford it. And then you have PFAS coming down the line too, right? That's that's uh, yeah, PFAS coming down the line. And so that's yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting one. You know, the effort that at Black and Beach we divided it into three stools, so we have a three-legged stool in terms of things. So we have the drinking water side. You know, the regulations came down on that relative to the technologies and so forth going on, uh, and having to meet some really tight standards. We have the residual side, which are being talked about relative to CERCLA and issues. And then in the middle, we have the wastewater side. And that's kind of what my focus is at Black and Beach is how to deal with PFAS at wastewater treatment facilities, as well as, let's say, coming in from the community, working with the industrial sector to essentially mitigate uh, PFAS issues so that we can essentially hopefully mitigate, not have to do as much treatment at the wastewater treatment plants. But working with the smaller, you know, project we're working on right now is we've got 18 different uh, emerging technologies that we're examining, doing pilot testing on right now. That list will be sort of whittled down to three where we'll do full scale demo. And that's for a municipality in the northeast that's part. That's so cool. North Are you going to be presenting the findings from that study? Oh, for sure, for sure. Oh, so I can't we'll, wait. We'll, that sounds so cool. 
we'll wait and see. And then, you know, we were recently selected for another client uh, up in the Northeast. What we're seeing a lot is, you know, utilities, that particular utility actually doesn't surface water discharge, the discharge to groundwater. So now they're essentially impacting a groundwater supply. And so they're, while it's a wastewater plant, it's a really somewhat of a water problem because they have to meet now the strict water discharge requirements for PFAS. Hmm. I will say that within the technologies, the 18 technologies that we're looking at, there are uh, two or three that are trying to implement within their scheme of treatment uh, UV disinfection or UV UV I technology. Was, I was just going to ask you for spoilers. <laughs> yes, the, there are three that are trying to do that. Excellent. Uh, trying to look at some way of media, you know, titanium dioxide, other types of media type of thing yeah. that they incorporate UV into the technology to try and uh, treat the, the. But a lot of the stuff we're doing is working with landfill leachate, so we're trying to treat the landfill leachate, and that's all nice and good. Except landfill leachate's pretty difficult in and of itself with all of the mixture of stuff that's within the leachate that so you kind of have to balance all that stuff within there to try and just take out the PFAS and let all the organics pass through. So it's not as simple of a situation as what one would think it would be because a lot of that's, you know, a lot of the technologies that are out there, the absorptive technologies essentially um, tend to be the organic and solids tend to plug up yeah. those technologies. And so there's a there's a, a great need for some other newer, uh, I'll call it innovative type technologies to be able to look at that. So it's, that's a, it's a really interesting situation, a lot going on right now, a lot developing relative to that situation. If it was so easy. just going through and learning all about these different new technologies, immersion technologies, are you finding that, and you're also in different countries, so are you finding that it's simple to implement these new technologies? Like, do you have to wait for, I know like with UVC LEDs, regulatory took a while to catch up. Are you seeing that on the PFAS side as well? Oh, that's an interesting question. The answer more than likely, because this is sort of a pre-treatment into the treatment plant, we don't have as much as the issue associated with the bacteriological side of the thing or the microbial side of it for compliance on the back ends. We're treating it at the front front end. So the plant still does its thing up front. So the, the key is trying to remove the material at that point. So we don't really have a lot of per se uh, requirements at this point. Uh, we can establish our own targets, so to speak. Now, just recognizing that if I'm an industry and I discharge to a municipality, there are uh, what they call effluent guidelines or other guidelines that EPA has established. And so you may fall under some things relative to those federal guidelines that you have to meet. But most of those are for discharging into the municipality. So they're they're not as, I'll say, more stringently examined at this particular time as the microbial side, again, related to public health. Now, will that Will that stuff develop? That's probably an interesting thing as we as we move forward. How that sort of unfolds, I can't answer that question yeah, at this right. point. But right now, 
we don't have those constraints. So we can sort of look at technology to kind of look at what gives us the best removal of the PFAS compounds for the cost. Cool. There's there's a lot of kind of freedom in that where you you really just get to pick what's best, not what what checks the box, so to speak. Well, interesting. What's best and what what can actually be deployed. Right. And and the challenge we still have is we're looking at you know certain amounts of leachate, and so are the technologies that we're looking at. So we're looking at the bench scale at this point. Are they easy enough to, uh, I'll call it deploy at larger flow rates. So some of them might be only a couple mm-hmm. of gallons a minute, some of them other gallons, you know, so can that, te- how does that technology yeah. scale up? And that's part of the little bit of the challenge. So, you know, some of them, you know, while we're testing 18, some of them may not make the cut because they can't be expanded uh, significantly. But I'll just say there's a lot of technologies out there that, you know, some of them might not be be a cost, you know. So that's yeah. It, it, I'm, I'm actually, you know, where we've got the technologies have all been tested. The data essentially being analyzed at the lab. So, you know, if we talked another thirty days, there would probably be something more to talk about. But Ooh, it's all too. it's all all, oh. all sitting on the in the, in the lab right now. Uh, PFAS analysis takes about a, is about a thirty day turnaround. 30 to 45 days so you know okay we got it sampled okay now wait for another 30 to 45 days i'm seeing with a lot of pfos pilots is the turnaround time and Mm. that really extends how long you have to pilot because you can't make changes can't try anything new you can't react for 30 days like that's it's a very long time working with a group that actually is using some technologies to try and monitor, I guess, certain variations of PFAS relative to online. Hmm. So, you know, that's that's part of what we're probably gonna pull in here because, you know, Molly, you mentioned it, the, uh, the, the turnaround time is a killer. It is, that, that will kill your project faster than anything else. It's just the hurry up and wait game. Yep. It's awful. Gary yep. and Molly, you guys are more on the on the end user case. I, I'm on the I'm on the lamp side only. Can you explain to me and for those out in the audience that don't understand why why is that? Why does it take so long? What's holding that back, or what's extending that that the um, testing time? Well, can I can I can I start and then I'll let Molly jump in? Part part of it. Well, let's say there's two things going on. So Dan, there are two things going on. On the drinking water side, there are only six labs that are approved to run the testing in the US. Does that answer questions? Um, and and then on the wastewater side, the other challenge is the fact that we really don't have an approved method from EPA to run analysis. Sure. So you've got a lot of stuff going on on the water side with very limited number of laboratories that have essentially approval from EPA to run the tests. And so you're, wow. it, 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 in theory, if you have the right uh, analytical setup, and so you have to have certain equipment to be able to do it. Is that and cert- certification and things like that to be able to do it? Is that but, going uh, to change? Or, or is there an effort out there to expand the number of labs that can oh, handle yeah. 
they, they have to. They, oh, they, yeah. ulti- they ultimately have to. And so, but most people, if we're doing analysis, won't approve data because now it's getting scrutinized. Uh, gotcha. So what I'm seeing now is people will actually work with two different labs. So they'll work with the EPA approved lab for their official data, but if they want things faster to be able to react, they tend to they'll work with a smaller lab that doesn't have the same credentials or is maybe closer, just sure. so that they can, you know, have yeah. some prayer of making of optimizing faster than thirty days at a time. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. online instrumentation might be a really good thing here. We oh yeah, if that gets nailed down, oh my gosh, life changing. <laughs> It's kind of like um, for certain other industries, like uh, NSF standards on like pool water, they're backed up and the cost of doing the test is so high that they'll use a cheaper third party to make sure that they're not totally screwed up. And then once they have a good feeling from that, that party, they go for the, the actual validation test. So that, that's yep. kind of similar there. Yeah. So there's there's a lot going on. It's it's a very interesting. I'll just say it that. But I'll just say keeping up with it is I'll say more than a full-time job because it's happening real time. uh, Yeah. It's stuff is happening very quickly. You know, people are trying to keep ahead of looking at what things are going to happen relative to, you know, what EPA is promoting. And so there's a lot, a lot going on and a lot changing almost, I won't say daily, but at least weekly in terms of, of that particular constituent. And from the outsider layman's perspective, again, me just being a lamp, a silly lamp guy, uh, it sounds like EPA is really not slowly, but quickly ratcheting up the, hey, guys, this is we're, we're doing this. This is not guidance. This is going to be the land for your- Well, I think I think that's the, the challenge with most people is EPA came out and said they were going to do it. And they all, hmm, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. You have said that same thing for 40 years. We don't believe you. Well, yep. then they started kicking stuff out. And they're kicking mm-hmm. stuff out, you know, trying them. They've made a roadmap and they're really trying to achieve what they put in the roadmap. And so you're seeing regulations come out faster than on this particular constituent than, than you've never, ever seen the EPA move. I was just going to ask, Gary, is there is there a precedent that you can kind of track? Do you have an idea or this is just totally, totally so far, far beyond that, that it, or, or it's so totally, unique? Yeah, yeah. I don't say totally far. You know, if they try to establish, let's say, some other regulations early on, and so EPA putting out the MCLs for drinking water as fast as they did was beyond what anybody ever expected. Yeah. And yeah. so and- now, you know, those sorts of things, like like I said, well, we've never we've not seen an MCL change in like. 15 years and this one got done in two. So you're, you're talking land speed and you're talking a lot of stuff going on that will are, are ultimately changing the face of what folks can do within the industry. Wow. I remember when that regulation came out, it was uh, during the ACE conference right. and the EPA had a big talk the day before they made the announcement and they were not saying anything about it. It was it was like top secret, and then the next day it came out, and it was it was quite the to do, yeah. if you will. It was great. Well, we were we were. I was thinking that we were going to see some of that at WefTech this year because they had kind of staggered things to sort of happen uh, okay. at, 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 within that time frame, and then of course the budget issue occurred, and nobody from EPA could come. 
because oh, essentially they man. had to leave on you know Friday night, Saturday morning to get to the conference to do their thing and the budget so that they didn't have approval to go and the budget mm-hmm. got approved on Saturday so the the EPA people couldn't either it was either EPA all EPA or government officials as well as contractors so that it oh, right. took yeah. a lot of yeah. speakers at Weftech that had to be re- retooled at the last minute. Very cool. But I'm, I'm going to guess that through between now and the end of the year, we might see some some more stuff coming out. All right. Yeah. All right. One of the questions that uh, that one of the producers had for you was um, wh- where does where does um, UV currently stand as it pertains to wastewater treatment in relation to other technologies, chemical or, or otherwise? Uh, it's a, I mean, it's a technology we look at. I've already talked about it today with like three or four different design teams. So it's a technology we, we see, uh, depending on different conditions, it's extremely cost effective. I think that the thing that people sort of have to understand is that there is, especially on the traditional, although say traditional UV systems that we have, the lamp sleeve scenario there is maintenance there are things that have to occur lamps do have to be replaced and that's sort of the hopefully the advantage that we have relative to going to uvc leds and if that has to you know plug and play and and things like that so there's stuff that have to be done but when you see the um i'll say the economics of 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 uv and the ability to deploy it um, you know, we're seeing a lot of issues associated with uh, supply chain issues. I mean, chlorine has jumped a factor of four to five. And in some cases, if you're up in the Northeast, the factor of 10 over what it was two or three years ago. When you start seeing those economics change relative to the, the cost of the chemical, and then a number of people were told, well, it's going to go up and we just don't even know if we can deliver it to you. And I still have to meet permit. I still have to be in compliance. The guys that have UV, you know, they're not they're not worried because they're still able. All the lamps and other things might have gone up in price. They're still able to get it. They're still able to run it, and they're still able to stay in compliance. If I can't get the chemical and I can't feed it, that's offering, I think, challenges on the disinfection side that we've not ever seen to that, to the degree that we're seeing in the cost. So if you start balancing off, you know, cost, UV can become very cost effective very quickly. Now that doesn't say that everybody's gonna go to UV. You know, for on reuse, we have to maintain uh, chlorine residuals within the distribution system for biofilm growth and stuff like that. We may not, yeah. you know, people might not may, but it's extremely cost effective. It's very, uh, the one thing that, of course, you have to remember with UV is you've got to, at least on the stuff that I work on, you have to look at the design conditions. You've got to think a little bit ahead because the UV is the UV. It's not like chlorine. I can go in and change out the rotor meter and I can start kind of kicking out more higher dose. When we when, when extend the capacity of the UV system, we exceed the capacity of the UV system. So that either that's the type of thing, but generally we design around that and look at that. And so it's it's I won't say it's and we still a lot, a lot of projects going on. I think a lot of the projects that I'm working on relative to the UV are more associated with 
uh, I'll say technology ending, life of technology and relamping. So it's looking at uh, systems that have been in, you know, 20 years and now we've got new technology. We need to kind of marry the newer technology or how we're going to implement that technology. We have one plant, the UV system is, you know, 20 some odd years old. Now they're trying to balance how to upgrade the PLC and the controls and electrical to match what that particular model would have today without completely removing that system and, and taking out a service. So there's a lot of that type of work going on right now. Uh, I think we've got three or four projects like that. We've got three or four projects where we're actually removing you know technology that's no longer available and putting in new technology. So a lot of that type of work going on uh, significantly, as well as I'll say people converting from fluorine to UV and looking hmm. at technology. So that that growth is is at the demise of chemical-based technologies, you're saying, right? Well, I'll say that. That's yeah. probably fair. Some cases. Fair. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. I'm not fully plugged into the other alternatives, but but uh, I, I would assume that that's got to be taking some some sort of share of the market, right? On, on the municipal side, it's always economics. Yep. So what's, again, the best removal of the microorganism sure. most confidently and reliably to match my different conditions? CapEx and OpEx. In college, you know, you're always told like there, there's economics behind it, and but when you get to the real world and you realize like everything's possible with enough money, not everything is possible within budget, and that that balance, I mean that that's why we're all here, right? I mean that's why this industry exists. If it was easy, we wouldn't be needed. So yeah, it's interesting. So um, Gary, we're gonna. Switch gears here. Our last little segment, we always do this where we interview folks. Um, so obviously this is, uh, well, Molly and I really aren't quite young professionals anymore. We don't qualify anymore. Um, Middle-aged. The the rules in the books were 35 years younger and that's gone. Um, and that was part of my hairlines about, I'm like, I'm running my forties. I, no, no, I still have hair, by the way. <laughs> See that? Actually, you probably qualify as a YP versus me because I don't have much left. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> no, this probably gets me out of it. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. So we always try to like um, ask a few questions about um, like, what what's your perspective, any advice for, for those who are, early career or, or just wrapping up their, their college studies for getting to UV, any advice for those young professionals who are, who are starting out? Well, I, I think I'll, I'll twist the question because I think the, the, a couple of questions uh, out there within the consulting arena, I'll, I'll say that that's kind of the arena that I kind of play in. Um, there are a lot of opportunities. Uh, most all of the consultants are hiring and looking to hire and staff up considerably, which is more so than what we have seen over the last couple of years. Um, but one couple of the groups that that I know, you know, they've uh, added, they've doubled their staff in two years. So, you know, um, I think within, uh, you know, within, you know, the, so people are hired. I'll just say that there's a lot of opportunity. There are a lot of opportunities relative to the municipal markets um, because a lot of the staff relative to the municipal market side of the equation, I'm talking utilities, 
are retiring. So there's a lot of growth opportunity uh, within that situation, get involved in, in projects and, and things like that. So there's uh, more so than we have probably seen in a number of years, uh, you know, tremendous opportunity relative to, to growth. Now, if we're looking, so what I would say is if you followed sort of the career path, because, you know, I got involved with UV, you know, and I'd been in working for five, six, seven years before I really got into UV uh, per se really heavily. That background allows me to do a lot more stuff. And again, when we're talking about being, you know, staying employed and knowing things, and then let the UV sort of come out. If you come out and say, I just want to do UV right now, that might not be uh, a, a very positive career path. Now, there are people that are doing that. I'll just say it that way. And there are firms that hire for that. Uh, ours, our firm, firm I work for Black and Beach, is going to be a more rounded wastewater engineer that pick up. Uh, disinfection and EV over time on the wastewater side, and then sort of understand the fundamentals of the upstream processes, how they change, how they be impact, how they impact disinfection before you get really into understanding the disinfection technology. And that's something I've always enjoyed because you can, you can impact the disinfection process significantly by better treatment. It's not just putting more disinfection in that solve that problem. Again, it goes back to the economics of things. And sometimes you can do that with little or no investment in dollars and improve the treatment plant. Well, then I've improved my disinfection and everything works out better in the end. So a lot, a lot, I'll just say a lot of going on. If people want to be involved with UV, those opportunities probably exist more so than they have in the past. Uh, again, a lot. With, you know, if you go to a utility, while they may have UV, may work on the UV system, they're going to probably want you to do some other things, but a lot more so than I've probably seen at any point in my career, uh, opportunities for people to get involved. But that, that, I'm, I'm only on the wastewater side. You know, if you want to go air, there's pro that that's probably a very wide. If you want to go surface disinfection, uh, that's pretty wide open. So... I'm just speaking from from my perspective on the, my little my little part of the world. So, but in general, let's say someone's going into any of those spaces, air, surface, wastewater, drinking water. What piece of advice do you would you want to pass along that maybe you wish you had been told, or maybe maybe you were told early on? What, well, maybe that... I was told, but I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you ignored at the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh Let's see what, what I say. I'd say. Don't be afraid of things. Uh, get involved. Uh, one of the things I'll say that's been really positive through my career is getting involved in the professional organizations. And sometimes that can allow you to spend, you know, IUVA is one of them. I mean, I got involved with I, that time again. WEF was there, but was not as big or a, uh, AWWA wasn't as big. So involved with uh, American Society of Civil Engineers, people like that. But you get involved, you get involved in local groups, allows you to learn more, learn what, you know, go tour, see what's going on, see the technology that are getting deployed, how they're getting deployed, you know, take that time to enlarge your 
vision relative to things. That's always been the fun part of my career. And if, uh, in terms of uh, being able to go and see and visit and talk with people, you know, understand what their challenges are and, and trying to work through those. I mean, I, that's the thing that I would probably want to do the most of now. And whether your boss allows you to do all that, that's a different question. But when those opportunities arise, I would say take them. Be ready to go. Yes, always ready. Yep. Absolutely. Cool. That's all the kind of questions that we had had drafted up for our interview. Uh, I would also say if people, you know, to listen to the podcast and they want more information, Pulse free to get a hold of me. I'm always open. And 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 if somebody wants to ask questions about what's going on and where things are at, be glad to follow up. Uh, there's no problem there. And uh, you know, it's IUVA has been great. You know, I've been working. I think I'm the treasurer now for the last number of years, so I can I can tell you where all the money is. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Gary Hunter, very much. Um, and a, a, as Gary said, you can find him on LinkedIn. Um, and in, in the in the podcast show notes, we'll add his email address and his affiliation and all that. So feel free to look through those and reach out to him if you'd like to learn more. Um, so wrapping it up today, um, the Wavelength Podcast comes to you from the uh, International Ultraviolet Association. This show is produced by Sakith Fenro and Dana Poutsey. Um, Nathan Moore does our sound design. And our music, as always, is by Justin Dossett and Stephanie Gora. So I'm Dan Spicer. I'm Molly McManus. And thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the episode and check back. We'll probably have another one up here very shortly. Thanks again, Gary. Have a good afternoon. Thank you so much. Take care. We'll see you. Thanks Bye -bye. for coming.